Hello and welcome to the Jacobites podcast, episode 2, Tensions, Tolerance and Revolt. So, we left last time with the death of Charles II and the ascendancy to the throne of James III. The king is dead, long live the king. James was born in 1633 in London at St James Palace. During the Wars of the Three Kingdoms, James accompanied his father initially, then stayed in the Royalist base of operations at Oxford. He was captured and imprisoned by the Parliamentary Army during the capture of Oxford. He managed to escape and spent his time in France in exile, serving in the armed forces under Marshal Turenne. After France, James also served time in the Spanish forces in Bruges, after the French had resumed relations with the new Cromwellian Commonwealth, and Charles, the soon-to-be second, had tried to enlist the aid of France's enemy Spain behind his host's back, which got Charles and his brother expelled. It should be noted that James was seen by observers to have served with distinction and valour in the engagements in which he served, which can contrast with perceptions of his conduct later on. Following the restoration of his brother Charles as king in 1660, James returned to court and took up the position of Lord High Admiral. He'd held this post since childhood in a purely ceremonial capacity, but he took this up with gusto on his return, with strategising to seize Dutch forts in Africa during the Anglo-Dutch Wars, and fortifying the southern coasts after a raid on the Medway by the Dutch Navy. Following this war, not only did he keep a sizeable amount of the money from postal and wine duties that were assigned to him by Charles, but he was also given land in the captured territory of New Netherland and New Amsterdam in the Americas. In honour of his title of Duke of York, these were named the province and city of New York respectively. He was also Duke of Albany, which is why the area north of the Hudson was given the name Albany. In James's personal life, he was known as a straight talker and rather humourless and serious. But that's not to say he wasn't a romantic. He'd been wooing Anne Hyde, the daughter of Charles's chief minister, Edward Hyde, for many, many years before the Restoration. And despite objections from both sides, James married her in 1660 and had two daughters with her. Mary, who was married to William of Orange, prince in the Netherlands, and Anne who married Prince George of Denmark. James, to all accounts, was a close and loving father, in comparison to most royals of the time. As Samuel Pepys wrote, he was like an ordinary private father of a child, presumably in contrast to the older traditions in the aristocracy of the time, to leave the raising of children to nannies and other staff. Despite his later reputation for piety, James did have a weakness for women, being called the most unguarded ogler of his time, and having four children with Arabella Churchill and another child with Catherine Sedley. It was during his marriage to Anne Hyde that James converted to Catholicism in secret. Both James and Anne had been attracted to Catholicism during times in Europe, but converted in the late 1660s in secret. James continued to attend Anglican services publicly for some time, until his second marriage to Mary of Modena in 1673. This was held by proxy under Catholic rite and then formalised by an Anglican after her arrival to the UK. Now, here would probably be a good time to take a quick detour into the sectarian strife within Britain that is going to inform a lot of our time on this podcast to one extent or another. The major European powers at the time were France and Spain who occupied territory overseas and were both Catholic. The Netherlands was a Protestant power, which had allied with others to check French and Spanish aggression, 
but also went to war with England over trade and English attempts to install William Orange as Stadtholder, given that he was married to Charles's niece Mary. They later made peace with England and France to the chagrin of Spain, who controlled territory in what was then the Spanish Netherlands. To a modern listener, it's hard to emphasise how living in an increasingly secular European society today, just how important Christianity was to everyday life. Bred into British people was an attendance on church every Sunday, with eternal damnation awaiting those who followed God, or more likely, the wrong denomination of God. Since the Reformation and the establishment of the Church of England and the Church of Scotland, which followed Anglican and Calvinist doctrine respectively, both had a distrust of Catholic doctrine which varied from pity in the misguided belief, all the way to open hatred and militancy in the case of John Knox, the preacher who helped found the Church of Scotland, and did all he could within his power to ensure that Protestant lords ruled Scotland as opposed to the Catholic Queen Mary, although that had as much to do with his misogyny as his anti-Catholicism, given his views on women, even queens, being secondary to a man in God's eyes. This anti-Catholicism gave rise to a fear that agents of the Pope would infiltrate godly Protestant nations and force all to convert to Catholicism. One such plot was spun by Titus Oates, a defrocked minister who invented plots to murder King Charles II and Cabinet and install a royal Catholic more amenable to France and Rome. There was next to no evidence of this, and the king was highly sceptical, but people believed it, just as they had when people had said a conspiracy theory emerged that the Great Fire of London was a popish plot. So you can imagine how happy everyone was to discover the king's brother and the heir to the throne was Catholic. This began a series of events known as the Exclusion Crisis. Several members of Parliament submitted bills that would actively exclude James, Mary of Modena, or any other person from holding office without receiving Anglican Communion in England. Charles did his best to try and stop them excluding his brother from the throne, but James had resigned from his position as Lord High Admiral to avoid having to submit to Anglicanism. Charles prorogued and dissolved parliaments who proposed to exclude James, and they wanted to have the throne passed to Mary, James's daughter, married to William of Orange. Others even wanted one of Charles' illegitimate sons, James Scott, the Duke of Monmouth, to be made king before James. But none of these plans came to fruition, and upon Charles II's death in 1685, having converted to Catholicism himself on his deathbed, his brother James was crowned King James II in April of 1685 in Westminster Abbey. In May, James formed his so-called Loyal Parliament, comprised of most of Charles's prior advisers. Sadly for James, he didn't have long to enjoy a loyal parliament, because Archibald Campbell, the Earl of Argyll in Scotland, and James's own exiled nephew, James Scott, the Duke of Monmouth, had launched coordinated rebellions to try and seize the throne. This was backed by some of the nobles who supported having a Protestant monarch, but in truth this was more of a last shot at glory for Monmouth, who was under fear of being arrested or assassinated in his exile by agents of the Stuarts, and so he felt it best to try and stake his claim. The Monmouth Rebellion, as it was called, was coordinated with Argyll's rising in Scotland, dividing the army of James II to fighting on two fronts, 
thereby increasing the chance of victory by spreading the men of the defending army too thin. Monmouth landed in Lyme Regis in June of 1685 with two ships of men, four cannons, a few arms, no horses and next to no money and provisions. Monmouth had hopes that with his more royal affectations he'd been adopting, as per his patron the Earl of Shaftesbury, and his newfound status as king-in-waiting, that perhaps he might be able to sweep to London on popular acclaim and be called king over his uncle. Fortunately for Monmouth, the West Country of England, specifically the county of Somerset, supported his cause financially and logistically with supplies and men. This overwhelmingly Protestant area of England had previously been known for holding parades, carnivals and fates upon hearing of the failure of the gunpowder plot, a celebration that continues in a form that's far more about charity and has removed all the elements of anti-Catholicism to this very day. Monmouth was placing his hopes on the fact that not only could he and Argyle divide and conquer the army of King James, but also that the people would rise up and anti-Catholic mobs would storm the palaces en masse, sweeping up from the southwest at the head of a large army to claim Monmouth's throne. Yep, all he needed was for Argyle's rising in Scotland to go well, and everything would be plain sailing from here on in. If some of you hadn't guessed from the slightly sarcastic foreshadowing, Argyle's rising did not go to plan. Setting off from Amsterdam, May the 2nd, with the lofty ambition of overthrowing the Stuart regime and, in their opinion, its Catholic absolutist ruler James, Argyle had actually met with Monmouth and agreed to serve under him in exchange for additional weapons and supplies. Argyle, who was himself in exile due to a death sentence passed for treason in 1681, rode to his native Scotland in order to rise his own supporters in the Clan Campbell as well as recruiting Covenanters and other strident anti-Catholics, making his intentions clear not only by lighting and parading the fiery cross in his lands, the traditional rallying symbol of clan chiefs to their kin, but accompanying banner that read, No Popery. Landing with 300 men and supplies off the Sound of Mull on May 11th, Argyle's party had already suffered vast misfortune after abandoning a previous landing at the Moray Firth on May the 5th, then sailing to Orkney to attempt to follow the north coast and land on the west coast of Scotland. Sea fog and a lack of wind forced the ships to moor in Scapa Flow. Docking at Swambista Bay, the Duke of Argyle's Chamberlain, a man by the name of William Spence, asked permission to go ashore, using family connections in the area to find somebody to pilot their ships to the west. Unfortunately, this raised the attention of the local magistrate, who ordered Spence and Dr Blackadder, the man who went ashore with him, arrested, and the Privy Council in London was alerted. After attempting coercion and negotiations with the locals to return captives after taking hostages of their own, Argyle's fleet left and landed in Mull after tacking along the coast. On arrival, Argyle's son Charles sent letters to local landowners in Lawn and helped to seize the castle at Dunstaffnage. In reality, very few answered their call, so it was Argyle's 300 men, plus the 80 or so who answered his call, who started their rising in Killaroe, moving to Campbelltown, where Argyle expected a good turnout in support. This turned out to be wishful thinking, given that most of the people who would have supported him had either a no idea what he was proposing, only that he was against King James, and B, neglected to mention the Covenanters or their cause explicitly, so they didn't turn out in support. 
Some Covenanters had long memories, remembering that Argyle and Monmouth had both acted against the Covenanters at the behest of the Crown, so Covenanter forces had no inclination to help them now. Argyle established a base at Iliandurg, but then wanted to push to Loch Fyne and beat the Marquess of Atoll's government forces. However, he was overridden by his leadership committee of the army. This divided command structure would cause all manner of indecisiveness and decisions. They could often take a long time, time within which enemies could gain on them, resulting in numerous skirmishes. Choosing instead to march down to the lowlands to make a sort towards Glasgow around June the 11th, to coincide with Monmouth's landing in Lyme Regis. On the way down, however, Argyle's army was met and overtaken by the soldiers from his own base in Ireland Yerg, who had fled from the government navy, led by Thomas Hamilton, who had sailed three frigates right in front of the base. The rebels had fled, leaving behind them 5,000 weapons, 300 barrels of gunpowder, the hostages from Orkney, and the standard they had raised to rally people to their cause. Understandably at this point, Argyle and his army weren't feeling super confident about the way things were progressing. Pursued all the way by Atoll, and about to be intercepted by the Earl of Dumbarton in Glasgow, the rebels again dithered, and again divided as to what to do. Argyle's advisers wanted to send the Highlanders north to Argyleshire, and use them to fortify and fight the grounds of the Highlands they were more familiar with. Lowland troops and Dutch volunteers would then press on south in search of further support. Argyle, on the other hand, wanted to take on the Marquess of Atoll's forces with his entire army. Then, once defeating Atoll, move to Glasgow and take on the Earl of Dumbarton with full force. Once again, the committee nature of the rebel army leadership went against Argyle and the army split in two. It was during this time that on top of desertions and lowering morale, Argyle was captured on June the 18th, 1685. Disguised in farmer's clothes and heavily bearded, Argyle was caught by a militia and when his pistols failed to fire, was knocked unconscious by John Riddle, a weaver. By June 20th, Argyle had been dragged in chains to Edinburgh and on June the 30th, his sentence from the 1681 treason trial was carried out and he was executed by the Mercat Cross in Edinburgh using the Maiden, a Scottish version of the guillotine where the condemned was face up to the blade. Those interested can see a Maiden in the National Museum of Scotland and I will be putting pictures on our social media pages after this episode. The remaining militiamen fought a skirmish at Muirdikes, but when Sir John Cochrane, commander of the remaining segment of Argyle's army, heard of Argyle's capture in the field, he announced to the army on June 20th they were to disband and fend for themselves. Bar rounding up the commanders, who were either executed, fled into exile, or in the case of Cochrane, reportedly turned King's evidence, Argyle's rising was over. Now, whilst this was all going on, the Duke of Monmouth had amassed forces in Lyme Regis, numbering a thousand men by June 15th, but two days earlier had lost two of his commanders in a fight about who should ride the best horse. Commander named Fletcher shot the other man, name of Dare, fatally wounding him, and was then placed under arrest by Monmouth. There were some more positive events for Monmouth and his army, however. They continued to gain volunteers who feared French interference, 
the constant belief in conspiracy theories that James was actually an agent of the papacy, who, amongst other things, had instigated the Great Fire of London, the papist plots to kill Charles, and may have even poisoned Charles II to take the throne. Now, every one of these was false, but there was enough anti-Catholic sentiment to persuade people that they were plausible. Some of these supporters came with nothing more than farm tools, giving rise to the alternate name of Monmouth's Rebellion as the Pitchfork Rebellion. Monmouth moved on through Chard, Ilminster, and proceeded towards Taunton. On June 20th, the same day Argyle was captured, Monmouth was proclaimed king in Taunton and denounced his uncle King James as a usurper to the throne. He then had the decision of where to attack next. Dragoons loyal to James II had tried to cough off new recruits to Monmouth's army, heading to Taunton, whilst James's commander in the field, the Earl of Feathersham, moved his forces to Bristol, believing that due to its status as the largest and wealthiest city in the West, it would be a prime target for Monmouth on his route to London and the throne. This guess turned out to be correct. However, King's cavalry, under Colonel Oglethorpe, engaged the rebels at Canesham, losing six of his own men, but killing twelve of the rebels. Captives taken by Monmouth blatantly overstated the size of their force, convincing the rebels that royal forces in Bristol numbered close to 4,000. This greatly demoralised Monmouth and his troops, and their mood was lowered even further when they moved towards Bath and finding the city well guarded, marched past its walls demanding surrender. Not only did the city refuse to surrender, but a chance shot by a sniper took out Monmouth's herald. Dejected by this, Monmouth headed back to his base at Norton St. Philip with his tail between his legs. Government forces attempt to press the advantage and attack Monmouth in his base, but owing to superior fortifications, the government suffered heavy casualties, followed by various artillery exchanges. Monmouth was unable to capitalise on this royalist failure, as rain hit the area turning it into a boggy mess, preventing any advance by his troops. Royalist forces simply withdrew to dry lodgings. This episode resulted in a new strategy for the royalists, where they would billet overnight in towns, but constantly kept Monmouth and his forces on the run, making it as far as Trowbridge and Warminster in Wiltshire, but given the fact there'd been no general uprising against the king, as well as the fact that the Battle of Norton St. Philip had shown the king's forces were more than willing to fire upon their own countrymen, materials and new recruits did not in fact materialise. There's some belief that Monmouth almost ended the rebellion here, and he would have urged his supporters to throw themselves on the king's mercy, had his advisers, in particular Lord Grey, not convinced him he had to make a stand against them, or ruin his own standing and reputation forever. Retreating via Shepton and Mallet and Wells, where he stopped at the cathedral to strip the lead for shot and some Puritan soldiers stabled their horses in the nave. Retiring to Bridgewater Castle, Monmouth decided to turn and fight the Royal Army, which had now not only received its tents and artillery, but also several battalions of professional soldiers sent by William, Prince of Orange. The place picked for the battle was Sedgemoor. Monmouth hoped to deceive Feversham and his forces into thinking he was fortifying Bridgewater. But this changed when Feathersham struck camp near Western Zoyland, a small town three miles from Bridgewater, with nothing but open land between Feathersham's army and Monmouth's. Feathersham appeared to have made his final fatal error. However, unknown to Monmouth or his scouts, between the two armies was a deep ditch, which limited infantry and cavalry operations to two small openings. Feathersham was still under the illusion Monmouth was fighting a rearguard action to retreat, 
so he'd posted the minimum scouts and patrols necessary. Monmouth's men would move in near silence overnight and then reorganise into deep columns, coordinating their advance with the Monmouth cavalry attacking from the north and driving the fleeing Royal Army from its camp into a wall of infantry in hand-to-hand combat. It was an ambitious plan that had the potential to take Monmouth's enemies completely by surprise. Monmouth, however, hadn't reckoned on Lieutenant Colonel Oglethorpe. Oglethorpe, using his own initiative, had sent a patrol to Bridgewater, pretending to be Monmouth rebels, and had discovered from people in the town Monmouth and his forces were intending to attack the royal camp. Now that Oglethorpe knew the plan, there may not have been enough time to alert the rest of the army. Unfortunately for Monmouth, one of his own nervous troops fired off a shot whilst marching in silence. Now, the royalists were alerted to the presence of Monmouth's army, so he had to quickly switch tactics and ordered his cavalry to advance, with three field guns offering artillery support and then followed by a disorganised infantry. Monmouth's cavalry got to one of the fording points over the ditch, only to be repelled by royal cavalry who were watching the road between Bridgewater and Glastonbury. In the heat of combat and the darkness of an 18th century night, Monmouth's cavalry split in two and were unable to regroup. The cavalry half commanded by Lord Grey, the man who'd convinced Monmouth to stick at the fight, accidentally rode across the royal camp, exposing themselves to withering musket fire. The rebel infantry did not fare much better. Confused, spread too thin, and unable to coordinate or communicate, the infantry advanced and fired their muskets from so far away their shots would be lucky to reach the camp, let alone do any great damage. After two hours of this and some damaging artillery fire, though sadly not enough to be of any great help to Monmouth, Oglethorpe's Royalist cavalry advanced, smashing the rebel infantry front line, who in response turned and fled. The front line had fled so quickly it left the rear line exposed, and the confusion that followed turned the rout of Monmouth's forces into a glorified shooting party. Rebel men were caught in bogs and running up slopes of ditches providing laughably easy targets. Within an hour of the Royalist counterattack, the battle was over. Monmouth's rebellion was dead. Monmouth himself was found hiding in a ditch three days later on July the 8th, dishevelled, living off of raw peas in his pocket. Taken to the Tower of London on July 12th, he was already declared guilty under an act of attainder, eliminating any need for a trial. On July 15th, 1685, Monmouth mounted the scaffold and put his head to the executioner's block. The executioner, one Jack Ketch, is well known for horrifically botching the execution, taking five attempts to finally remove the Duke's head, at which the crowd was said to have turned nasty and the executioner had to be escorted away for his own safety. Now, both these rebellions failed miserably in their objectives, but for James, they only helped strengthen his hand in terms of eliminating his enemies and consolidating power. In the Bloody Assizes, a court set up in the southwest of England with the notorious corrupt hanging judge George Jeffreys, hundreds were executed and over 800 transported to the West Indies under sentences of indentured servitude. In Scotland, I know for a fact having visited Carnassery Castle, that it was burnt to the ground due to the fact that it was owned by the Campbells, who had had the unfortunate chance of siding with Monmouth. Now, if we turn to James and his domestic policy, he 
doubled the army, arguing that militias in Somerset had shown themselves unable to match Monmouth or willing to defect, so therefore a more regular professional army would be needed. Many of the officers in this new wave of recruits were Catholics, but James dispensed with the Test Act, which had required all public officers to take Anglican Communion. When Parliament decided to protest this flagrant breaching of the law, James prorogued Parliament, and that particular Parliament never ever sat again. It was this type of behaviour that later gave rise to accusations of James's authoritarian tendencies. Another thing James wished to address was the tolerance of his own Catholicism, which was obviously quite close to his heart. In this, he sought the cooperation of Presbyterians, Jews and Quakers, as well as other fringe religious groups collectively known as the Dissenters, for their divergence from the mainstream Anglican Church teachings. He started his attempts at reform by publicly offering asylum to the French Huguenots, who were fleeing persecution from Louis XIV in 1685, but some people tended to see this as pandering to the English Protestants for pandering's sake, or attempting to deflect attention from French Catholicism and any possible sympathies for the French James may hold. So very much in that chance, a damned if you do, damned if you don't. In the same year of 1685, James also relaxed restrictions for Jews in London to practice their faith. The next year, in 1686, James observed Mass on Christmas Day in a newly built Catholic chapel in Whitehall. James then issued his famous Declaration of the Liberty of Conscience in 1687, declaring that while he himself felt the Catholic religion was the one true faith, that the Church of England would be safe within his hands, and that he declared a person's faith was their own business and the state should not interfere. Famous dissenters like the Quaker William Penn and the Presbyterian Vincent Alsop seemed in favour of this and of Test Act repeal, which would allow them to worship without persecution and therefore aim to help support the King in this repeal act. James, meanwhile, played up Monmouth and his defeated supporters as dangerous religious fanatics, fully deserving of the horribly violent protracted retribution against them, which had caused some to criticise the King. Next, the King and dissenters set their sights on procuring a Parliament that would repeal the Test Act, and James began surrounding himself with Catholic senior advisers and attending Mass on a daily basis. It's said that even Queen Mary of Modena became more strident in her Catholicism, going so far as to throw hairbrushes at the women of court who disagreed with her on questions and faith. Now, this was something people in 1680s England would have been genuinely fearful of. They would fear this as a new wave of French-style authoritarianism moving toward Catholic absolutist monarchy, and with it the horrors remembered by those who knew the actions of Queen Mary I, the famous, or some would say infamous, Bloody Mary Tudor. James, probably as a result of his time in exile in France, often felt closely linked to the country, even proposing an alliance with them to protect England's commercial interests, especially the Royal Africa Company a company established for the trafficking of gold and slaves from Africa, of which James remained the governor and the largest shareholder for many years. The Royal Africa Company itself transported roughly 5,000 people a year across the Atlantic, which James was fully aware of and fully profited from the exploitation of those people. This alliance with France 
tended to make many nervous, as they remembered not only how Catholic rule had been under Mary I, not to mention decades of anti-Catholic indoctrination ever since the Reformation, but they also remembered James's father, King Charles I, whose perceived autocracy and tyranny had led to the bloodshed of the Wars of the Three Kingdoms. Matters were made even clearer when a group of bishops called the Non-Jurors, because they refused to read the reissue of James's declaration, were then imprisoned. And following a passage of an indulgence in Scotland, Catholics were no longer allowed to be sentenced to death for hearing mass privately. Now, eventually the non-jurors were acquitted in court, but the damage of James's authoritarian tendencies had been done. If you ask me, I don't think James was seeking to impose Catholicism by fiat or terror. Um, but with the hysteria of the 1680s, the geopolitics of the time, I think people could see that there might have been a Catholic attempt to put in a regime. We look at it now as unfounded, but people lived in a very paranoid time when it came to religion. So it's hard not to see that mindset that could fall into place. I personally think James was probably seeking some level of tolerance so he could have his faith without fear of persecution. But his own belief in the divine rights of kings and his own personal unwillingness to compromise is what probably led him to give in to these more authoritarian tendencies which fostered ill will towards him as a king. Now, all this authoritarianism was probably slightly tempered by the fact that James had no male heir at this point. James could practically die tomorrow and the Catholic monarchy would have been stopped with him, as the crown would pass to either of his daughters, Mary or Anne, both of whom, at the request of their uncle, the late King Charles II, had been raised in the Protestant faith. However, after numerous miscarriages, Mary of Modena finally gave birth to a healthy baby son on June 10th, 1688. He was named James Francis Edward Stuart, and, thanks to the rules of male primogeniture that were in place at the time, officially leapfrogged his older sisters to become the designated heir to James II's kingdom, and with it, the promise of a continued Catholic reign in Britain for years to come. So, there we have it. The birth of the next Catholic heir and the beginning of people's concerns of a Catholic-dominated kingdom. In the next episode, we will look at the impact of the birth of James Francis Edward Stuart, the reaction to the gentry and the repercussions which led them to look across the seas to William of Orange and James's Protestant daughter Mary as potential invading saviours of the kingdom. As always, I'd like to thank everyone so much for listening. If you could please leave a review if you've enjoyed the show on all formats, it goes to help a lot. If you'd like to get in touch, we're available on Twitter at Jacobite Podcast on Instagram at the Jacobite Podcast or via email at jacobitepodcast.com. Thank you once again, and I will see you next time for the Glorious Revolution. <laughs>